When it comes to anorexia and disordered eating, what is talked about the most tends to be behavioral and psychological drivers behind it. But disordered eating, especially anorexia, is driven by more than just your mind. New research is finding that there are also neurobiological drivers. These are biochemical imbalances that act invisibly on your body. These biochemical imbalances don't need to be fixed with medication, though. In fact, the most common neurobiological driver for those with anorexia is zinc deficiency. Zinc is the most common micronutrient deficiency in people with eating disorders, and symptoms of zinc deficiency are eerily similar to anorexia. Some symptom overlaps between anorexia and zinc deficiency include anxiety, altered taste, hormonal imbalance, weight loss, and even increased exercise. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Libby Stenzel, RD, all about these hidden causes behind anorexia. Libby is a registered dietitian based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and an expert in anorexia and disordered eating. She specializes in helping people with disordered eating to find healing and freedom with food, exercise, and body image. On today's episode, you'll learn how you can find freedom from shame and fear with food, heal your body more while working at it less, and how to harness the power of balancing your internal neurobiology to overcome anorexia and disordered eating. Welcome to the Better Belly Podcast, where we find freedom from food restrictions, we increase energy in our lives, and we begin to feel more healthy and vibrant than ever by finding the root causes of our health problems. My name is Allison Jordan. I'm a marathon runner, functional medicine, health coach, certified craniosacral therapist, gut health nerd, lover of Jesus, and owner of Better Belly Therapies, a clinic based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that works with both virtual and local clients to help them achieve the best health of their life. I am here to walk with you on your journey to a better belly and a better life. We're going to go beyond popping a probiotic and just checking out our poop. In this show, we are going to go deep into gut transformation strategies that last for your entire life. If you are ready to feel your best, get ready to roll. You are in the right place. And just as a reminder, this information is not meant to diagnose, manage, or treat disease. Always consult with your own health practitioner before you make any changes to your health. All right, guys. Well, today I'm so excited to welcome to the Better Belly podcast, my friend and registered dietitian, Libby Stenzel. Libby, welcome to the Better Belly podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. I'm excited to be here today. Awesome. So uh, one of the reasons, guys, that I wanted to have Libby on the show today is because Libby is very passionate about something that I've gotten questions about a lot. Um, I'll get emails and DMs about this, and it is something that I don't specialize in quite enough, but it's something that is really, really relevant to anybody who's struggled with uh, gut health problems and just like difficulties with food. And that is eating disorders, or at least an uncomfortable relationship with food on that being like a spectrum of things. I imagine you, um, you're going to be talking with us about Libby. So Libby specializes, specializes in this. She's a registered dietitian. She 
struggled with eating disorders, eating disorders herself. And actually, I'm going to cut that out and just say, Libby, um, what brought you to your this place in? Sorry, I'm trying. I'm re rehashing a, a question that I usually ask. But Libby, why do you do the work that you do? Yeah, so a lot of my motivation for working with eating disorders and any form of disordered eating, like Allison mentioned, it's really a spectrum, even if someone hasn't necessarily been fully diagnosed with an eating disorder, they can still experience a really distressing relationship with food, exercise, and their body. And a lot of this stems from my own experience um, recovering from anorexia nervosa, which I was actually diagnosed with in high school. And I'm sure like a lot of people who end up getting diagnosed with an eating disorder, that wasn't something that I ever would have thought would have happened to me. Um, I actually think thinking back to when I was a kid, I had a really, what I would consider just healthy, normal relationship with food growing up. I didn't, you know, think about what I ate. I wasn't experiencing guilt or shame around food or my body. Um, but it kind of spiraled in high school when I was really into soccer and basketball. And it was a lot of the weight loss that was set into motion when I was doing a lot more activity with not enough uh, nutrition to compensate that kind mm. of spiraled that obsession with restriction, with over-exercising. And it's actually interesting, especially with anorexia in particular, once some of that initial weight loss and starvation is set in, there's actually like this neurobiological drive to keep restricting, to keep losing weight. So it ends up being this spiral that's really um, difficult to get out of. So anyways, to answer your question, um, a lot of that experience was just so transformative and life-changing for myself that I wanted to help other people experience healing and freedom themselves. Right. And Libby, I've, I've known you since before you were specifically a registered dietitian, but you've been passionate about people having healthy bodies for a long time. Like you've been a big advocate for yourself, but then also for other women that you've had in your life that you've mentored and, and been able to speak into their lives. And so it's really exciting um, that you're doing this. And one thing that you said just now is you use this term neurobiological drive. Um, I'm guessing this is some type of feedback loop or feedback system in the body. I'm not familiar with exactly how it works. How does, how does this work? Um, this, uh, yeah, neurobiological drive that you mentioned, like once you start starving yourself. Yeah. So I can't speak to too much of the specifics in terms of like specific neurotransmitters or pathways that's going on, but there's this phenomenon in particular with anorexia with once someone starts losing weight and once that starvation state and severe weight loss is set in, there's actually uh, this drive within the body that's kind of counterintuitive. You would think it would be the opposite, but to keep restricting, to keep losing weight, to keep over-exercising. And um, for example, there have been studies done in animals where you know researchers will give rats like a calorie-restricted diet and a control group of just like a healthy, normal, adequate amount of food. And the rats on the restricted diet will actually exercise themselves to death. Like they'll keep running on the, you know, little ramp. They'll keep going, keep, keep going. Um, you know, where you'd think it would be the opposite. There's actually this drive to keep starving oneself, which is part of the reason it's so hard to treat anorexia and so hard to get healthy. 
Interesting. And I want to hear you speak more into that. But one thing I do want to point out or at least bring into the conversation is not all of our listeners have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I know that almost all the clients I've worked with and myself, whenever I went through like the most sick I was with all my gut problems, like there's just so much fear of food and you do feel like uh, most of the time and, and often it can be very difficult to get the calories you need or the nutrients you want because you're like, well, that food makes me feel bad and that food makes me feel bad. And so I think that there's a similar experience, even if it's not the same thing of as anorexia, which is a very specific diagnosis. But I'm wondering if there's a, do you know if there's a specific, if there's a correlation even between those two things of people who, who are being restricted for just reasons other than some something behavioral or something internal to them, but there may be medical reasons they're being restricted and that that also will perpetuate this neurobiological drive? Yeah, I definitely think these two things can go hand in hand. Like even it might start out like you're saying, maybe someone's having just purely physical symptoms, like not any disordered eating per se when it comes to food, but it's that it becomes so much so like, like you're saying, like such a fear of certain foods, which may be very legitimate, like maybe they really are experiencing these physical symptoms, but it definitely becomes really hard to tease out um, because they can go so hand in hand and it's kind of one can lead to the other and vice versa, like even eating disorders can lead to a host of GI symptoms and GI symptoms themselves, like trying to solve them, like you're saying, can actually lead to disordered eating. Um, so I think they can go hand in hand that way, definitely. For sure. So tell me, I don't know a ton about this other than what I've personally walked through in healing my own disordered eating. I'd say at least fear of food being a big part of my journey. And then talking through some of my clients' um, journeys as well when they have fear of food. But what what do you do as a nutritionist? You're a registered dietitian. What are some of the things that you can do with clients who have disordered e eating, whether or not there's a diagnosis attached? Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things that I work with clients on is helping people to learn how to trust their bodies again. Um, and it's definitely a fine line and it definitely depends, you know, what the primary problem is, because of course, in your case, a lot of clients may very legitimately need to be cutting certain things out of their diet. They have very real physical symptoms going on that really take, you know, a hard look at what one's eating. Um, and what you may need to do to adjust things in that regard. But I think if the primary problem that is needing to be looked at is more psychological and disordered eating, it is really important to help clients be more flexible to expand what they're eating, even if that means for a time eating more foods that may be, you know, quote unquote, unhealthy from a more physical health standpoint. And I think it can be helpful to take this slow to be incorporating foods and realizing I can you know, eat this piece of cake and I'm not going to gain two pounds the next day. <laughs> like our bodies are very resilient. I think when, um, our base is of health and our body is functioning properly, our body can adapt and adjust. Like when we're not eating the most nutrient dense foods, our bodies can adjust, like our weight can stay in a normal set point range. Um, they're kind of designed with all those feedbacks and, uh, systems. So I think, it's really important to help people when they're struggling with disordered eating, gradually be able to, you know, reintroduce a variety of foods. And on the one hand, be able to 
eat these foods without having this spiral of guilt and shame internally. And also to recognize from a more physical standpoint that most likely, unless something really serious is going on, like you're not going to have these drastic changes to your body from enjoying an ice cream cone with your friends, for example. Right. Yeah. So Libby, what is the role of a registered dietitian? Say someone knows that they have disordered eating or they know that they've been made, whether it's a biological problem with food, like food sensitivities, things that need to be dealt with there, pathogens, et cetera, or a psychological problem. What is the role of a registered dietitian in someone's health team if they have something like that going on? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the way I see it is that Oftentimes, like many health problems, it's really helpful to be working with a team of healthcare practitioners, whether it is a full-blown eating disorder or just any degree of disordered eating. It's definitely helpful to be working not only with a dietitian, but also with a therapist, especially those two roles can kind of get a little blurry sometimes. Um, but in terms of the role of the dietitian, oftentimes that might be weight gain if someone is experiencing a restrictive eating disorder, helping them you know, eat an adequate amount of food to get to where their body is at a healthier place. Um, so sometimes it's weight gain, sometimes it's looking at nutrient levels and getting our lab values in a healthy place for correcting any deficiencies. And a lot of it also is more that psychological component, helping people relate to food in a healthy way, um, which is also why I think it's helpful to work with a therapist because sometimes some of those issues go a lot deeper than just the food. Like, I feel like at least with eating disorders and disordered eating, so much of that is more surface level symptoms. It's like, what is driving someone towards that? And I think working with a therapist can be really helpful. Um, and then I don't specialize so much in nitty gritty gut health things, but of course there are dietitians that do, or people like yourself, um, who I think it's really helpful to get help with that as well, because of course, disordered eating and eating disorders, as we've mentioned, can lead to a lot of gut health problems as well. Got it. Yeah. I mean, so you can get from somebody who does, for example, like me, functional lab testing and you're getting, you know, is there a parasite driving going on there? One thing that I've seen in my practice is somebody might have disordered eating in their past and it weakened their immune system. And then they are more likely to get things like candida overgrowth or um, H. pylori just because their immune system is down, especially in their digestive tract. And then once they have that, even once they don't have disordered eating from maybe a psychological standpoint, they're still getting mixed signals because when they eat food, they don't feel good. And that's, they're like, is that in my mind or is that, is that in my gut? And there can be a little bit of that questioning. So lab testing kind of delineates like, Hey, let's, let's make you not feel crazy. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Let's, if there's anything biological driving underneath all of this, what's going on, Hey, let's, let's figure what that is out. If there's something psychological, let's, let's not make, you know, say that that's, you know, not meant to be, or not worth dealing with, deal with that. And then working with someone like yourself who can say, let's talk about some details on like maybe how much food you're going to eat or like what type of foods we could eat and what, what's a reasonable rate that you could kind of maybe increase things without either psychologically frustrating someone or even biologically, you know, you, you probably wouldn't. I don't think you would actually throw cake maybe at someone who who has been having some other dietary problems, but um, yeah, I definitely that is that a good summary of kind of what you're saying where the registered dietitian fits in. Yes, and I like how you brought in the functional medicine and lab work piece because that's also something I'm really passionate about and think is really important because 
an eating disorder, like thinking about anorexia or bulimia, binge eating disorder, or any degree of disordered eating is going to wreak so much havoc on the body and be such a traumatic experience for the body that even if someone is weight restored and relating to food in a healthy way, there can still be these lingering, lingering underlying problems that I think getting more lab testing, taking a more functional medicine approach can be really key in to really resolve those underlying problems. Tell me more about that. I think when I think about functional medicine, it can be such a helpful tool, not only in eating disorder prevention, but also like I mentioned, recovery, because there are, from what we know in research, just a lot of underlying biological imbalances, even nutrient imbalances, gut health imbalances that are factors for eating disorders. So I think if you know, functional medicine was more common and people were getting those corrected earlier that could even help to some degree prevent problems like disordered eating. And like I said, on the other hand, um, if your body is going through this traumatic starving experience or binge eating and purging or any amount of restriction that can also lead to gut health imbalances, nutrient imbalances, and like I said, even if one is weight restored, those can still linger on for years and years and years. And you might not ever know about it unless working with someone like yourself who can really dig deep and help figure out what's going on. Yeah, no, I've heard you talk about this a lot before. What are some of the symptoms that someone might experience if, you know, they have normal weight, maybe someone's like, they feel cleared, maybe they're, they don't even have a diagnosis anymore for an eating disorder, or they don't feel anxiety with food, but what might be some of the symptoms that might not get flagged by other practitioners that they could be looking out for that might suggest there's more healing to be done? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times even after those main marks are hit, you know, GI problems can still persist, constipation, bloating, gassiness, you know, abdominal pain, early satiety. And even once, let's say someone lost their period and they're menstruating normally, they may still have a lot of hormonal imbalance symptoms. They might still have really bad acne and, you know, hair symptoms and a lot of anxiety and depression. And as you talk about how huge the gut is for that, and just, you know, there's so many imbalances that could still be going on that could really need addressing. So that's kind of how I picture this full spectrum of health. Like I see someone like me, maybe helping someone, you know, get out of that really critical state. Like if someone is anorexic or really needs to work on gaining weight and just being able to eat food, but then they really may need to see someone like you to help them really uncover for lasting and optimal health. Yeah. Um, I love all that whole list that you shared before our things that we've talked about this on this podcast a lot, like early satiety, and that can be a problem you deal with whether or not you had an eating disorder, but early satiety is often caused by low stomach acid. And so you put food into the stomach, the stomach's like, well, I can't eat this or even sometimes motility problems, which is a nervous system, central nervous system thing, but low stomach acids often caused by nutrient deficiency. So specifically mm -hmm. zinc and then secondarily sodium, both of those are really important important to creating proper amounts of stomach acid. Um, we can be very deficient in zinc very quickly. <laughs> it's used mm -hmm. for so many processes in the body. Um, but that's one of the big things I find in most of my clients is that they're deficient in zinc, then they have low stomach acid, early satiety. That's going to cause problems with eating enough food that you want. Mm -hmm. Or once you eat the food, 
if you have early satiety, even if you're forcing yourself, like you can tell you're still hungry as in you still feel weak. You don't feel great. Um, and I say this from experience. Have you experienced yes. early satiety, Libby? <laughs> Uh, so when I had, when I was recovering from anorexia, that's also just a really difficult thing is uh your hunger. Like you don't feel hungry, so, but you need to eat so much food. Right. Um, but it's also interesting. You mentioned zinc, which I'd love to just touch on more. That's something I've experienced undercovering a zinc deficiency, actually working with a functional medicine practitioner and walking through that. Um, and actually zinc is the most common micronutrient deficiency in people with eating disorders. And I wrote this whole giant paper on it in grad school, zinc deficiency, but it's actually so much literature out there. Like the symptoms of zinc deficiency are very eerily similar to anorexia in terms of, you know, anxiety, altered taste, hormonal imbalances. And there's actually been studies done where people or they've done this on animals too, given purely a zinc deficient diet. Like that's the one factor that they're trying to change will induce weight loss and decrease eating okay, um, and increase exercise, like some of those anorexic behaviors. And then a lot of studies have been done where the the variable being tested is giving someone a zinc supplement. And that actually helps a lot with weight gain and better outcomes and eating disorder recovery. So I just think zinc is fascinating. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do too, with what you're saying about, um, just the acid in the stomach and yes. zinc's role there and early satiety. Like now that you mentioned that, and I know you have the episode on zinc and it's role of that, that makes a lot more sense too. We have several, I will link them in our show notes so that people can link, look, listen to it more. And I love, I didn't know you did a whole research thing on zinc. I didn't know that it was so interesting to the kind of disordered eating community too. But yeah, I mean, zinc is a deficiency. I I haven't seen any research on this, but I'm going to, I will be bold and say, I have a personal opinion slash theory that zinc deficiency also is running post COVID or current COVID. Like when someone gets it, that change in taste. So zinc rules our taste, but it also zinc deficiency can cause a lot of skin problems. So I get clients who come in with dry skin, flaky skin, acne, eczema, psoriasis. A lot of that will improve um, at the same time of their them being able to absorb zinc. And one of the catch-22s, which I do talk about in our zinc podcast episodes, is that you need stomach acid to absorb zinc. So mm-hmm. That's another thing. Even if you've been taking eating foods with zinc or taking a, like a multivitamin that has zinc in it, a lot of times you really want to make sure that you are also doing something to augment augment um, stomach acid. It's another problem if you have acid reflux and then someone gives you a proton pump inhibitor or something, an anti-acid medication of some sort, and you also have eating problems and you have bloating and all this stuff and you have skin problems and you're just zinc deficient. But that all, I mean, that gets into the whole stomach acid, zinc, early satiety, acid reflux, big weave, um, or big, big connection um, thing. And it can sound really messy. But the cool thing is, is you solve zinc and stomach acid, and it like all goes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's crazy. Uh, do you have anything else that you, you want to add that I, I feel like sometimes as we talk more, more things come to mind? Anything else on zinc? I think it just highlights even more why I think it's so helpful to have more extensive like lab testing done, like both in general slash maybe when one's recovering because like zinc alone could make such a huge difference. And I know like thinking about me 
that was never something that was tested when I was healing. But then years later, when I was still having symptoms and was taking a more functional medicine approach, that was something that was uncovered. Like it was really, really low and it probably had been that way for years. And I've been able to correct that, but it's not like, it's something that we can fix and can make a huge difference in one's mental and physical health. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's totally testable. Um, you can even do it with blood tests. If you know what you're looking for, there's a specific, um, I'm just throwing this out there just so people feel encouraged. Like, um, but you know, if you ever get blood work, ask for alkaline phosphate, alkaline phosphate cannot be made in the body without zinc. So if it's low, which is low on a ton of people, at least the clients that I work with, it's a huge indicator that it's low zinc. It's not like a one-to-one to zinc, but it's, it's, if it's low, there's a really high likelihood that you have low zinc too. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like totally there. And that's blood work that is in, uh, or at least it's, it's considered one of the markers that is one of the most common pieces of blood work we'll get. It's often ignored by doctors if they're not looking for something specific in you, but it's in the comprehensive metabolic panel, which is a very basic blood work that you can get run. So it's not even like super weird. It's something that doctors can run. They just need to be knowing what they're looking for. Um, I'm throwing that out there just for people, just so you know, it's not super hard to get zinc or get a, get a baseline level on zinc. Um, and then one other thing I'll even share just for people if they're like, is there anything I can do, you know, without going to doctor, there's actually a, um, product called zinc tally. You can buy it on Amazon and it's created by a doctor who wanted people to be able to just get a real quick baseline understanding of what their zinc levels might be. And it's a taste test. And it's just this little clear liquid that you just put a little bit on your tongue. And if you don't taste anything, then you are likely to be zinc deficient. It's not, it's not the same as like a blood test or something, but um, if it tastes like a copper mouthful of copper pennies, uh, you're, you have good zinc. And usually if you're somewhere in between, you might get like a delayed flavor to it, but we'll put a link in the show notes as well as for zinc tally. Cause that's always a fun little science experiment <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. My clients love using it as they're trying to measure their progress of their zinc. And it's really good feedback of like, I can taste something now, Allison. So that's that I will end that on our zinc conversation. But, but what I'm interested in you telling us about next Libby is how did you get involved in functional medicine yourself? If it's, I mean, it sounds like you had this delay, like you kind of were like, okay, I'm not, don't have anorexia anymore. I don't maybe feel like I've disordered eating, or at least, you know, I've got good weight. I've got good markers there, but you were having these ongoing symptoms. How did you even know to look for functional medicine? How'd you find someone? What was that journey like for you? Yeah. So I feel like thinking back, I had recovered pretty much all the weight by the end of high school, went off to college. It took a lot longer for my hormones to get in balance. And that's a whole nother conversation of taking, you know, like a year off of exercise just to get my period back, had to gain quite a bit more weight, even than what my kind of set point had been historically throughout my life, just to stimulate that. That was really difficult. And it was kind of post that time that was really were not great like I for like an entire year I didn't even like wear my hair up because it was like crunchy and oily and just horrible and I had so much acne like worse than it's ever been in my entire life just I just knew things did not feel right but I felt like I would try to go to the OBGYN or an endocrinologist and not, I know they're very helpful for certain issues, but I felt like they weren't giving me any of the answers that I had, or it was kind of like, 
here's birth control to like help with your hormonal symptoms. Like, right, oh, that's right. Not helpful. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, a bandaid. So anyways, I just remember somehow stumbling and this was back in like 2014. I feel like functional medicine is more commonly known now. Maybe it was back then, but I had never heard of it. And somehow I found someone in the Metro Detroit area that I started working with and we got a lot more, like way more extensive testing done showing crazy abnormalities. And like, it was very validating that like, I'm not crazy. And these, like, it, this makes sense why I'm having all these symptoms. Um, so yeah, I did a lot of work with this practitioner and then unfortunately had to take a break from that and ended up going to the Cleveland clinic, doing more work there, functional medicine team there. That was another like level of help. Um, so it was kind of, like you said, I got out of the total danger zone with like the weight recovery and normalizing my relationship with food. And I didn't feel like that was an issue, but I think that caused a lot of damage. And I think there were issues probably present before any of that, that maybe even were a factor, even if it was a small one as to why that ever happened in the first place why you ever got the eating disorder, mm -hmm. you mean? And are you, and, and that was actually something that, you know, in our conversation, even before this, starting this podcast episode, you'd been talking about underlying contributing factors to eating disorders. And I was, I was like, what is that? I really wanted to ask you about that. And now that I'm recalling it, you actually said zinc deficiency was a, would kind of just cause this not eating enough and then over-exercising I'm, I'm guessing that's what you're referring to. What is there anything else that can be have been found to be contributing factors that would lead someone into a, a disordered eating? Definitely a whole host of things that could be oh. a whole podcast episode. Oh my goodness, but, tell us. Some. I mean, in terms of there's biological factors, which definitely zinc deficiency is one of them. Gut imbalances, um, you know, issues with processing of neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, all those types of things. So I feel like there's the biological, there's the genetic, like in researching prior to this podcast, for example, like with the MTHFR gene mutation, there's been research out there that studies have shown that people with anorexia are three times more likely than controls to have at least one of the genetic mutations for that. And that's something that I have. Interesting. And there's the, all the psychology, yet. yeah, all the personality traits you know, family issues, social issues, there's just so many factors, but a lot of it is actually biological. And that's kind of going back to what we started out this podcast with. I think it's this whole soup of biological factors that end up with this neurobiological drive to keep restricting, keep over-exercising, like the rats that are zinc deficient and kill themselves by running on a little treadmill. <laughs> it's like, what happens when you I don't know, end up having anorexia through some weight loss. Wow. And it's like, that's why anorexia is the mental illness with the highest mortality rate, because you don't realize you have a problem and you're biologically, biologically driven to keep doing it. Wow. You're blowing my mind, girlfriend. <laughs> so Libby, I love what you're sharing about this biology thing, because I have to admit, I am personally a little biased towards the biology that drives uh, all of our symptoms and, and even negative behavior, right? Things that were like, oh, I don't like this thing about myself. Um, I've done lots of counseling in my life. I'm very pro counseling and the psychology, psychological health, spiritual health, all that jazz. But I 
personally struggled a lot growing up with how much of the depression or anxiety or, you know, constipation or digestion problems or fatigue even, you know, insomnia that I dealt with in high school and in middle school that I now look back and I just thought, well, maybe I'm lazy. Well, actually, maybe I was deficient in some nutrients. Maybe I was eating gluten, which I was, and maybe that wasn't great for me neurologically. Um, what I, I've just never heard this about disordered eating, that there can be just MTHFR, super common. We know that that can cause a lot of problems with hormone imbalances and detoxification of toxins in the body and um, all sorts of things there. But I hadn't heard of that with disordered eating. I just think that it's very humbling to realize there's a lot of biological factors. I think it can take a lot of the shame off the like pressure, the disappointment with ourselves that can often then, of course, perpetuate disordered eating or, you know, just the paralysis around our own health of like, can I ever get better? I'm the one doing this to myself. I'm like, well, actually, if you had a bit of zinc, <laughs> you might not feel so crazy. Mm -hmm. And I find that that happens to my clients a lot that once we start getting some lab tests, we they first feel this initial shock and relief that like there's something on the lab test. Because of course, before they come to work with at least clients I've worked with, they often already been to doctors and the doctor said, oh, there's nothing wrong with your labs. I'm like, well, that's not true. We see it on the paper and then we start making some changes. And I've even had this happen with my, one of my clients, Abby, which I'll link her story in the show notes. But um, she had this, she came to me, she was a runner like yourself. Uh, we are, you haven't actually talked about that explicitly, but Libby runs marathons, y'all. She loves to run. Um, but I had another client, she ran ultra marathons. She's a business owner, like really, she's got a good, strong will, right? Like she doesn't have problems with getting things done, but she was having problems with sugar cravings and she was just eating like bags of gummy bears and all this stuff. She's like, Allison, I don't know why I do it. And when she wanted to hire me, she said, okay, Allison, I want you to keep me accountable. Like, just make sure I don't eat the gummy bears <laughs> and the ice cream and all these other things. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, no, Allison, I need you to do this. And I said, I actually don't need to. We're going to fix whatever's biologically going on. I had theorized that she had a food sensitivity and some microbiome imbalance driving it based off of some symptoms of like her cravings would come after she would eat breakfast, for example, which is super felt super random. But I was like, I bet there's foods in your breakfast you're eating that's making your microbiome go a little crazy and then causing cravings because your microbiome can actually send hormone signals to your the gut lining the um, wall of your gut and say hey we want more sugar well we interpret that of course as I want more sugar and we'll be like I'm happy to oblige I will eat those gummy bears and we did a test and sure enough she was sensitive to spinach and broccoli and she ate it in an egg white omelet every morning. We took those out. She put in two different vegetables and her cravings in three days were down 80%. And so I was like, see, no willpower needed. And it just, it really changed her vision of herself. What, what was her like kind of something integrated to of like her psyche or her personhood, all those things um, versus like what was maybe in her body. And she was just almost a victim to in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's huge what you're saying. Like once we can understand more of the biology and the reasons why something may really actually be driven in that way from a biological standpoint, point it can take so much of the shame out and be so helpful and really healing from that and focusing on fixing those biological factors which then in turn can really help with everything else that's going on yeah 
Oh, that's great. Awesome. Well, Libby, here's one question I haven't asked you yet that I love to ask people when they um, are guest experts, when they come on the podcast, which is if you could have everyone know one thing about your area of expertise, what would it be? I think actually kind of like what we've been talking about, if I could have everyone know something, it would be that so often eating disorders and disordered eating aren't just like a diet gone wrong or someone who's so obsessed with how they look that they feel the need to manipulate their body in this way. Like so often it really at the base is more biologically driven, psychologically driven. Like I know for me, it really had nothing to do with my body or how I looked. It was just this compulsion and addiction and biological spiral in a lot of ways. So I think if people could understand that, um, it would take so much of the shame and stigma off of eating disorders and help people really, you know, recover in a holistic way by not only working on the relationship with food, but also addressing the biological underlying issues. Wow. That's powerful. Guys, I did not know this is how this podcast episode was going to (laughs) go. I mean, I knew it was going to be great, but I, I feel like I'm having a lot of ahas about my own experience with my health and wondering if I like at the worst part of it, I was like, do I have disordered eating? Like, do I, cause you know, I was trying to do, should I be going to a therapist about this? Not that it would be a bad idea, but, um, but then also just thinking about how, I mean, yeah, disordered eating and, and, and health problems just can often go hand in hand. It's almost like its own symptom. Mm-hmm. it's like it's not it's not a I mean it can cause plenty of problems but it's in some ways it's a symptom it's an outcome of a potentially of just a biological factor and even the fact that I, something I've wondered a lot is how do people you do you can see people who don't seem to have the right or the common sociological psychological familial things going on that at least I have been taught to associate, oh, you get an eating disorder when you have all these other things, but it could be kind of, I didn't even realize that's how you, how you saw what was probably a huge cause for your eating disordered eating was, mm-hmm. um, biological, biologically driven. Yeah. And if anyone's interested, I would highly recommend on this topic, there's a book called Decoding Anorexia by Carrie Arnold. And yeah, it goes very in depth into more than any gritty of these biological processes. And I read that just like a year or two ago. And that was so, that honestly was so helpful for me because like I said, like somewhat it made sense in my head, like why I ended up developing that, but it was also like, how on earth did that happen? But reading that book really, really allowed me to make more sense of it like oh my gosh like this makes so much sense from a biological standpoint like how that could happen when you weren't necessarily like trying to lose weight or paranoid about how you looked like people often think with eating disorders um so yeah I think like you're saying there's often so much going on biologically with whether that's gut health eating disorders And it's, I think it's tricky to tease apart because it does often, like our biology influences our psychology and vice versa and all of that. So it's definitely very complicated, but. Right. Um, Real quick, decoding anorexia. We'll have that in the link in our links in the, for the show notes, but do you, with that, do you think it would connect at all with anybody struggling with bulimia or any, any type of disordered eating, or is it pretty specific? I'm just thinking about our listeners who I know have contacted us about other disordered eating situations. I'd say it's 
it's pretty specific to anorexia, but I'm sure anyone struggling with disordered eating in any facet could gain a lot from reading about it. Okay. I yeah. Think a lot of those underlying biological drives are similar, even if that's not right. a specific diagnosis. I know. I kind of want to read it now. <laughs> well, thank you for that resource, Libby. And Libby, to end us out, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're like, you know, I think I've got this thing going on. Maybe they have some other people in their team and their health team trying to work out disordered eating and their relationship with food. And they're like, but I want to register a dietitian. I want someone to help me with my nutrition. Um, if they have, so- if there's someone who would like to work with you, how could our listeners contact you further? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Libby Stenzel Nutrition, or the best way to connect with me is through my blog. It's called Everyday Chocolate. And on my blog, I have a link to my work with me page, my practice, which is Libby Stenzel Nutrition. So yeah. Awesome. Well, Libby, thank you so much for coming on to the Better Belly podcast. We will put all of your contact information in the show notes, nice and easy. And thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise and your passion and some of that interesting research and information on disordered eating and uh, just helping give hope to people who are perhaps going through some of those experiences, experiences themselves today. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. Just want to make a quick note before we move further in our notes. I made a pronunciation error in the marker that you're going to want to find in blood work. I said alkaline phosphate. That is not a thing. You want to be looking for alkaline phosphatase. That's alkaline phosphatase. Well, if you would like to connect with Libby again, I highly encourage you to go and check the link in our show notes, check out our website, check out our Instagram profile with Libby Stenzel Nutrition, and you can connect further with her there. But if you have an eating disorder and have had it in the past, but you feel like you have ongoing symptoms haunting you despite having a better relationship with food, I would love to help you. You can sign up for the foundations program waitlist by going to betterbellytherapies.com slash waitlist or by clicking the link in the show notes. In the foundations program, I use four key foundational functional lab tests where we get to look what's going on in the hidden invisible insides of your body. You get a six month customized health plan, six months of monthly coaching calls with me and a changed life. So if you are ready to just rehaul your entire health and heal from even old wounds and old sicknesses and injuries in the past, then I would love to work with you. Again, go to betterbellytherapies.com slash waitlist or click the link in the show notes. If you are new to the Better Belly podcast or have been listening for a while and haven't subscribed yet, I want to encourage you subscribe. We have even more awesome episodes coming up. Subscribe so you never miss a beat. And if this episode made you think of somebody, take a screenshot and share it with that friend. I cannot count how many times when I tell someone I'm a gut health therapist that they say, oh, I know someone who needs you. So send that friend a love note to their gut and do us a favor and pass this podcast along to them. Other ways you can stay in the flow with us is by following us on Instagram at Better Belly Therapies. I love connecting with our listeners there and it means so much if you drop by and said hi. 
And lastly, if this podcast has blessed you in this episode or any other episode, I want to invite you to leave a rating and review. Leaving a rating and review is a wonderful way for other people just like you to find this podcast episode. So head on down to Apple iTunes or Spotify, give us a little rating, and we will see you next week.